Welcome to Targeted, True Crime, Domestic Violence. We tell stories of women, men, and children who were targeted by domestic abuse. We investigate cases of family violence each season using academic research to interpret the events. As a college professor, I think we need to stop making family violence a secret. It's time for us to tell our stories and use our experiences to help, to heal, and to provoke change. I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted. Last week was part one of the story of Jane. If you haven't already listened to it, please go back and hear that episode first. For those of you who have already listened, let me play a brief review to remind you of what we learned from Jane last week, as many things that were mentioned impact the story you'll hear today. I've taken about 25 minutes of audio and condensed it into four minutes, so it's leaving out lots of detail, but hopefully reminding you of the important information. If you don't need to hear the recap, feel free to forward ahead to about five minutes. I'll include the exact timestamp in the show notes. I am 50 years old. I have four children, three of which are grown and one is a teenager. I met my now ex-husband in 2011. He was amazing, very handsome, very charismatic. I was in love and happy and just everything was wonderful for the first time in a long time in my life. The day that we were married, the U.S. Marshal Service arrested him. That was quite a shock. When he got out, everything was fine for a few short months. He refused to work. I finally gave him an ultimatum one day that he was going to get out and get a job. He had a week to do it or he was gone. He jumped me on the couch, pinned me down, started to strangle me. I pretended like he had choked me out for him to get off me, and he did. The police department arrested him an hour or so later in the next town at his grandmother's. He would stalk me like crazy. I would call 911 and basically be screaming and yelling for my life that whenever the police would get there to where I was, he would be gone. They believed me, but like he's gone. There's no proof. There was really nothing that they could do. Shortly after this, something just clicked in my head. I mean, it was already in the back of my head that, you know, hey, you've got to get out of here. Packed up my stuff and I left. One of my best friends at the time, we discussed a code word to use in case anything were to ever go down. If I called her or texted her and said that code word, call the police department. It's all hands on deck. I need help right now. One evening, I'm in my house cooking dinner, and I turn around, and this guy is in my living room. He picked up a baseball bat. He's grabbing me by my clothes at my throat and grabbing me by my throat, going back and forth between that, swinging this bat. He started kicking me from head to toe. I mean, kicking the hell out of me as hard as he could. Also, he had grabbed my phone and threw it up against my patio door. And surprisingly, she was still on the phone. She heard the whole thing. Colin ended up dropping his phone. He runs out the door. Two officers came through the door with guns drawn. They called the ambulance. The ambulance comes. My left ear was partially ripped. I had a broken collarbone. Numerous, numerous soft tissue injuries, of course. At least one concussion. 
some of the officers that are there, they're looking around, they're looking through his phone. One of them asked me, they said, do you know anything about a bank robbery? A guy on a racing bike had walked into the bank with a motorcycle helmet on, given a teller a note, and left on the motorcycle. And I thought, oh my God, that, that's him. And one of them said, well, whenever you recover enough from this, you probably need to call the detective. I stayed a couple of days in a safe house after I was released from the hospital. And I finally decided, you know, I just, I want to go home. Police department came and helped my landlord with installing motion detectors outside my doors in case he came back. I can't remember if it was the first night I was there or maybe the second night. I look up and this guy is back at my patio door. He was very bedraggled, very tired looking. I could tell that whatever he'd been on, he was definitely down off of it. And, you know, my first thing is, oh, my God, what do I do? Do I call the police department and risk him leaving like he always had done before? Or what do I do here? So I let him in. I let him in and I talked to him and I told him, I said, hey, you look really bad. Let me make you some coffee. I know you're hungry. Let me make you some breakfast. He's sitting there on the couch. One of the police officers had left me a card with his personal cell phone number on it. I texted this police officer and told him that I was okay, but Colin was in my house. And the whole time I'm thinking, please don't respond. Don't text me back. Don't call. Don't do any of that. And I'm also, I'm praying that they come. I'm praying that they come. Probably about 20 minutes later, there's a knock at my door. Colin freaks out. Who is that? Who is that? Did you, did you call the law? Oh my God, calm down. It's, it's the landlord for a work order. The dishwasher's not working. Just calm down. It's no big deal. So I go and I answer the door. The, the SWAT team was there. They filed in and, and they got him. He was hiding under my bed. So he goes off to jail again. And I'm thinking, oh my God, thank you, Jesus. It's finally over with. You know, he's gone now. Some of you may have been questioning Jane's choice to let Colin in. You may see now that she had a plan. She didn't want Colin disappearing again, and she had faith that she could keep him calm enough to give the police time to come and arrest him. Obviously, it should not be a Target's job to do this. But in the real world, Targets develop a set of street smarts that help them navigate the destructive world that an abuser creates. Targets cannot control the major abuse, but sometimes we can influence the mood of the abuser for a time. Again, we shouldn't have to do this, but the reality is that we do. Jane knew Colin well enough to know that he was capable of hurting and killing her, and that he also had a history of going off the grid for weeks at a time. She had a split second to make her decision, and she chose to let him in so that there was a better chance of him being arrested. He was in jail for a couple of weeks, and a relative of his did a cash bond and got him out. Relative asked the sheriff's office, if he runs, am I going to be responsible? Am I going to get in trouble if he runs? And they said, no, it's a cash bond. You know, you're just going to lose your money if he doesn't show up in court. He said, okay, well, that's what he's going to do. He's going to run. This particular relative has always really done things for him. While he was out on bond, the stalking started again. I mean, 
just crazy stuff again. I was terrified to even go outside. I would leave my house. I would go get in my truck and I would take off and go to work. And I would just pray that, you know, I made it in and out of my house alive. He would call me from other people's phones. He would call me using an app that would give a different phone number. I would have to answer my phone because I was on call for work. I would tell him, leave me alone. You need to leave me alone. Just leave me alone. You know, it went back and forth from, I love you. I just want to come back. I'm sorry to, I'm never going to leave you alone. I'm always going to be over your shoulder. In previous episodes, I've discussed the effectiveness of restraining orders. But there is one type of offender who is least likely to respond appropriately to them. Stalkers. The behavior that Jane is describing is classic stalker behavior in which the perpetrator harasses the target with unwanted and obsessive attention. It's a potentially pathological trait that stems from an unsecured attachment experience during someone's childhood years. There are a number of types of stalkers, as discussed by Malloy and Fisher in a 2005 article in the Journal of Forensic Science. I think Colin may be what is termed a pathological narcissist, in which somebody has a sense of entitlement, even more so a sense of grandiosity, that in turn reduces that person's empathy for their target. Keep this in mind as Jane continues her story. One day I stopped at a grocery store uh, on the outskirts of town, ran in to grab a few things for dinner, unlocked my truck, did the remote start, unlocked my truck as I'm walking towards it. I get in my truck and he gets in the passenger side. Basically held me hostage for about two hours in my truck in this parking lot. Took my phone away from me, took the battery out of it, threw it in the back seat, took my keys, told me that if I made a move to try to summon help, he was going to kill me right there. Very high on drugs, very paranoid. Things such as, why is that guy staring at us over there? He's fixing to call the cops. What guy? Like, I don't even see who you're talking about. I was at a toss-up between, do I combat roll out of my truck and run through the parking lot screaming for help? What do I do here? What do I do here? Finally, he let me have a cigarette. I could tell that he was getting really worn down. I finally told him, I said, look, I know that you're really tired and you're really sleepy and I know you probably need something to drink. Let me drive to this convenience store the next block over and get you something to drink. I'll get you something to eat and we'll work this out. And he tells me, okay. So I drive to this convenience store. He makes me drive around back. The whole time I'm thinking, okay, he's making me drive around back. He's going to kill me. Like this is where he's going to kill me at. He didn't kill me. He raped me, held me down. I lay there, my eyes closed, fist clenched. Just, it was disgusting. And, you know, and he's telling me that he loves me. When he's finished, he gets out of the truck and he starts walking off down the road. And again, it's like, do I call the cops? I mean, what do I do here? I don't know where he went. He walked down this road. He could be anywhere. I go home and I shower and it's just like there wasn't enough showering. There wasn't enough hot water to wash the dirty off, to wash, wash off the situation. During this time also, I get a call from a field agent with the FBI. They want to come talk to me about the bank robbery. 
three agents came to my house. It started off as a very guarded interrogation. Part of me is defensive, like, you know, what the hell? Why are you asking me these questions? But then I would have to step back. Okay, they are just doing their job. I finally opened up, hey, whatever y'all want to know, I'll tell you. I will tell you all of it. Really, all I knew nothing about the bank robbery. All I knew was his drug dealing stuff that he was involved in. I'm not saying that they didn't care about that, but that wasn't their jurisdiction. That wasn't what they were there for. Several hours later, by the time they left, it was basically just a casual thing. They do not know what's happened. They're just doing their job. I gave them the racing helmet that was at my house. I still had his phone. He had gotten another phone, but I still had the phone that he had dropped during the assault. They got very excited over the phone. I asked, why are you so excited over the phone? And they actually had a notebook, a large binder that was filled with still shot from the footage from the bank. Something that they hadn't released to the public was that the perpetrator had stopped for gas at a convenience store down the street from the bank. And so they had the surveillance from that as well. One of the pictures was this guy has his hands up on the counter when he's paying for his gas. And in one hand, he's got cash. and the other hand, he has this phone, which was a very large phone that was a concave shape. And that hit me hard too. I mean, that was like, oh my God, it really is him. Forget that it looks like him. Forget that it's a racing bike with a helmet. Oh my God, he did this. I talked to the FBI several times. They came to my house to get items. They took items. I took them a couple of things that they called and asked for. It was kind of like we were old friends by the time it was all over with, as funny as that sounds. Finally, one day, a friend called me and said, the U.S. Marshals hit Grandma's house last night. That was on a Friday evening that they hit her house. I told my friend, I said, well, you know, I could tell him that he wasn't there. I don't know where he's at, but he wasn't at Grandma's because that's the first place they're going to look. Monday morning, I got a call from the Marshal Service. Hey, we need your help. You need our help. We need your help. We need to get him, and we want you to lure him out. So I set up what they called a controlled meeting with him. I contacted him and told him, hey, I've got a royalty check here. I made it some odd amount of money so that it didn't sound suspicious. I know you need it. I want to meet you somewhere and give this to you. He says, oh, no, I don't want it. You keep it. I said, no, no, we're not really together anymore. Got your name on it. I want you to have it. He agreed to meet me that day, but then he ended up calling it off. The next day, he agreed to meet me, and he was arrested by the Marshal Service and some other law enforcement agencies were there in the Walmart parking lot. Finally, he's gone to prison. During his prison stay, he called me to the point that I had to have the sheriff's office block my number so that he couldn't call me. He wrote me numerous, numerous, numerous letters, probably a hundred letters. I moved five or six times. He would find me every time from inside prison and I would get a letter addressed to my new address. I had a protective order put in place. Contacting me in any way from prison or in person was a violation of that protective order. 
sent my letters to the district attorney's office, scanned them in, emailed them, took them there, nothing. Only after he actually got to prison did the letters stop. They stopped him from writing me. He's still, he's still, he, he's still like still trying to find me, still trying to find out where I am. For instance, he had one of his cellmates write one of my friends and ask where I was. I finally got tired of running and I bought a house this year. I finally decided it's always going to be part of my life. It's always going to be there, but I, I'm tired of running. He was only given five years. And that actually wasn't for the assault. That was for him strangling me previously. He had been put on probation for that. The district attorney's office decided not to prosecute him for beating me with the bat. So Colin is in jail for five years for his first assault when he choked Jane. But he will not be prosecuted for beating her with the baseball bat and kicking her. The two assaults happened in different counties and each district attorney's office handled domestic violence cases differently. The fact that the one DA decided not to pursue charges for the beating is infuriating to me. I asked Jane if they told her why they would not pursue this case. Yes, because I accepted phone calls from him, and I put money on his account at the jail. The phone calls that I accepted from him were me telling him to stop calling me, stop contacting me, and leave me alone. The money that I put on his account at the jail, the commissary account, were royalty checks that were coming in his name. The district attorney's office, they offered him a plea of 15 years initially. Anything out there that was pending for him, the whole collective deal, if he would take this 15 years, then that's all gone. He refused. He refused 10 years. He refused five years. The next step was to take it to trial. The way that it was explained to me was that I would not be able to bring up the past history. I could only talk about what happened that night. His attorney had told them that he would bring up to a jury that I had been in contact with him and that I had financially supported him. Even though it wasn't as it was going to be portrayed as, that was probably enough to make a jury have reasonable doubt. And I see that point. I see that point. I don't agree with it, but I see what they're talking about. For those reasons, they did not want to pursue this case and they dropped the charges against him. And I found out later on that they're kind of known for that. This particular county, the district attorney's office is known for that. I've contacted them in the last year to ask for my protective order to be amended. And the lady said to me, well, is there any abuse going on currently? Well, no, he's in prison. Well, if there's no abuse going on, then we don't do that. Other counties do. I've spoken to other counties and they do. I have nothing for the district attorney's office in that county. The police department, the sheriff's office, amazing amazing. District Attorney's Office, don't have anything for him. I'm still boiling over the lack of action of the District Attorney for the assault charges when Colin beat Jane with the baseball bat and kicked her. How unusual is this lack of action on the part of a DA? Unfortunately, it's rather common. 
In the United States, the district attorney is an elected position, and the person can change every few years. On the one hand, this is good because citizens can vote for a DA whose values align with theirs, and we can try to elect someone who will prosecute domestic violence cases assertively. On the other hand, it also means that enforcement of policy and prosecution may be capricious. In my opinion, Jane's case is one that absolutely could have gone in front of a jury once Colin rejected the plea deals. I think it's fair that his defense lawyer would have been able to bring up the fact that Jane accepted phone calls and deposited Colin's royalty money into his commissary account. If Jane had been questioned about it during a trial, she could have told them exactly what she told us. It took her just a few sentences to explain why she did these things, and it makes sense to me. A jury should have been given the chance to decide. Also, I understand that the DA hesitated to prosecute because legally, prior bad acts are often not allowed in a current trial. And this would mean that Jane could not testify to the strangulation for which Colin is currently imprisoned. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't speak to whether or not that's accurate for where this trial would have happened. I have known of cases in other places where a previous assault of the same victim is allowed as a pattern, but that's not to say it would be allowed in Jane's case. Even so, I would still like to get this case in front of a jury because there are little breadcrumbs that might allow the jury to understand what was happening anyways. For instance, if Jane's friend was a witness at the trial, she would have testified that she and Jane had arranged for a code word, and if Jane used it, she should call 911 and get the police there as soon as possible. The 911 call could have been played, and that, I'm guessing, would have also conveyed this fact. From this, the jury could easily infer that there was a reason Jane was afraid enough of Colin that she needed a failsafe. Even though Colin was convicted, sentenced, and is serving time in jail as of January 2019, unfortunately, his release is looming. The other county gave him five years for strangling me. I have fought his parole every year. In Texas, they're reviewed for parole a few months before their parole eligibility date. His parole gets denied. I'm relieved and feeling peaceful and living life to the fullest for eight or nine months. And then he's up for review again. For another three or four or five months, I'm living on eggshells. Oh my God, are they going to let him out? His max discharge date is February 2nd. Come February 2nd, that's it. They have to let him out. He's done day for day his time. He will not be on parole. He will not have any legal restrictions. There will be nothing but a piece of paper between he and I to keep me safe. I have a home security system. I have cameras everywhere. I've had a legal name change through the attorney general's office and the local court. I have very close friends that don't even know where I live. I, I don't know what else to do to protect myself. When Jane first contacted me, we corresponded via email. She sent me her story, which she had written out as a way for her to process and document her experience. Her written words had an impact on me, and I asked if she might share her story on the podcast. I was not prepared for the increased impact that hearing her story as spoken by her had on me. 
hearing our story, not just reading it, is profound. If you're anything like me, you wish we could fix this somehow. Colin is getting out of jail soon, and he has a history of targeting Jane. My main thought here is that he should have been prosecuted for the assault when he beat Jane with the bat. I wanted to know Jane's thoughts, so I asked her what she thought should have been done by either law enforcement or the courts. I wanted to know what could have been done to make her safer. Really? I don't know that there's anything that can be done. I feel like that the district attorney's office re-victimized me all over again. I feel like that there should be stricter domestic violence laws and protocols. Believe me, I understand fully now, crystal clear, why a lot of women and men do not prosecute their abusers. I get it. The powers that be should have listened to me a little more. Really, honestly, going all the way back to square one, the one thing that would have made me safer was me loving myself and valuing myself enough to have stepped out of that relationship immediately. That's the thing that could have made me safer. I look at that relationship and I look at the past few years and I think, oh my God, how stupid was I? Why did I let myself go through that? Why did I put myself through that? Jane says she could have been safer if she had left the relationship earlier. We will never know. But I don't want my dear listeners to think either Jane or I are victim-blaming. Jane simply said what she is thinking and feeling. And this is something many targets of domestic violence express. That they wish they had done something earlier to leave. On the one hand, I, I think we all wish that the targets did not endure the violence they did. Let us never forget, though, that it is not the survivor's fault. It is the perpetrator's choice to abuse. It is the perpetrator's choice to manipulate. It is the perpetrator's fault for not ending the abuse. Jane was with her husband because she loved him and she saw the positive in him. She was a forgiving woman who was willing to give him room to grow from his early mistakes because she didn't think people should only be defined by their past. Colin took advantage of her love and acceptance, gradually becoming abusive, and then he escalated the abuse rapidly. If you are in a relationship that you think may be abusive, but you're not sure, or if you're in a relationship that has been abusive and you're hoping, praying for your partner to change, please consider speaking with a domestic violence counselor. Talking with a trained professional can offer clarity about what you think your next actions should be. In the show notes, I always include some links of organizations that are safe to contact. Using your voice, finding your voice, can be powerful. Jane talked a little bit about this during our interview. You said something in one of your early podcasts that really stuck with me. I had an an oh my God moment that abusers pick us. Abusers pick us. They know who they can get to. That made me really look back on my situation at the time, my mental state, and I was an easy target for him. 
I needed something and he had what I needed at the time. I've grown so much because of this. Am I glad it happened? No. Am I thankful for what's come out of it as far as myself goes? Yes. Very thankful. I have become a much stronger person. I know I've got fight in me. And it will never, ever, ever happen to me again. I have learned to love myself. And I'm learning to find my voice and actually tell the story and talk about it. Until recently, I haven't talked about it. I have value in myself now that I didn't then. And that's come from the situation. It's come from hours of therapy. It's come from a lot of soul searching. It's came from a lot of things. Even so, Jane told me that she lives with the level of anxiety, knowing that Colin will be released soon. As we talked, the thought struck me that this podcast could be dangerous for her if Colin heard it and if it angered him. Here is how Jane responded. I sent him to prison. I fought to keep him there. I seriously doubt he's going to just let this go. But I don't think the guy even knows what a podcast is. If he listens, I hope that he hears that I do not ever want to see him again. I want him to go live his life and leave me alone. As I mentioned in part one, Jane is now a domestic violence advocate and is active in asking Texas to adopt new legislation called Monica's Law which we'll discuss more in part three. Here is a brief snippet about why Jane became involved with this particular legislation. That actually happened around the same time that my situation happened. And it scared me even more because it's like, oh my God, I could have been Monica. Like I almost was Monica. Join us for part three to learn more about Monica Deming and the legislative reform that is being proposed in her honor. I want to give a shout out to Bonnie from Writing About Crime, who became our most recent Patreon member. Thank you, Bonnie. We appreciate your support. And if you're not already listening to Writing About Crime, you should check it out. Thanks so much for joining us at Targeted Podcast, True Crime, Domestic Violence. If you're interested in my research, I include a bibliography on my website, www.targetedpodcast.com. If you're looking to connect with others who listen to the show, please consider joining our closed Facebook group called Targeted Podcast. Just request to join and you will be approved. You can tweet at me on Twitter. My handle is Targeted Podcast. I'm also on Instagram with the same name, Targeted Podcast. If you want to support the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and writing a sentence or two about what you like. It helps other listeners to find us. If you'd like to support the show financially, you may decide to make a small monthly Patreon pledge. If you've been listening to the podcast, you may be learning a lot about domestic violence and society. While you won't earn a college degree by listening, I named the different Patreon tiers in honor of the college system. For $1 a month, you can be in the student tier, and you have access to episodes that are advertisement-free. For $3 a month, that will let you access the teacher tier, and everyone at this tier or higher will receive monthly bonus episodes. 
please stay tuned for promos at the end of the podcast and check them out if they sound interesting. I'll include links to them in my show notes. As we end, let me emphasize that if you or someone you know is targeted by abuse, you are not alone. There are resources available for you. I've included some information in the show notes and on my website. Leaving an abusive relationship can be one of the most dangerous times for a target, and I strongly encourage you to reach out for support. It may be the hardest thing you ever do, but it will be worth it. I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted. Peace, my friends. Peace. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of the podcast, Southern Fraud True Crime. Each week, I take a look at a different Southern crime, and like any good gossip, I'm interested in anyone or anything. I cover contemporary and historical cases, and I love listener suggestions. Come join me as I explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. I'm a one-woman show in a narrative format. Kind of like sitting by the fire and listening to a story. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and just about any podcast platform. Just search for Southern Fried True Crime. Until then, y'all take care. The world can be a mysterious place. It can also be a boring place, so let's focus on the mysterious. Rusty Hinges is a podcast that explores mysteries, hoaxes, natural phenomena, and weird history. Basically, anything that's a bit, well, hinky. Season 1 topics include the tale of Clarence Roberts, a man who died more than once. And then there is the maybe kidnapping of June Robles the sun that danced in the sky over Portugal, and an unsolved murder on the high seas. Rusty Hinges is generally skeptical, but never dismissive. Well, (laughs) usually not dismissive. You can find Rusty Hinges on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. That's Rusty Hinges. R-U-S-T. You know what? I have faith in your spelling abilities, so go and subscribe to Rusty Hinges, and maybe you'll solve a mystery. Probably not, but you know. You never know.